our salaries and we pay our taxes and what do we get? Nothing! They don't represent us. They need to pay the ultimate price for their crimes. An example needs to be made. If you're scared of confrontation, do not move forward. Patriots, move forward. This is our chance to show them how serious we are. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report. I'm Scott Cook. Most of what we've done here so far has been focused on the activities of the most violent members of the mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021. This has evolved evidence that the government has presented that attempts to demonstrate that these various far-right gangs plotted together to carry an attack, out an attack on the Capitol, either to get Mike Pence to block the certification of the electoral vote victory of Joe Biden, to compel Congress to block the certification, and perhaps to take hostages, all with an in-game directed at Donald Trump invoking the Insurrection Act of 1807 in an unconstitutional power grab to overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election. This week, I'd like to turn to the bit players, those defendants for whom the government will not present evidence showing that they committed violent or destructive offenses against persons or property. These defendants are an important subset of the defendants, in part because revisionists, People such as Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia are now claiming that the insurrection itself was like, quote, a normal tourist visit. That's a bald-faced lie. Representative Clyde himself was in the House chamber and helped other members move furniture to reinforce the doors of the chamber with impromptu barricades. There are photos of him actually barricading the door, which he probably doesn't do uh, when tourists are touring the Capitol. So this week's episode is going to review the charges against the defendants who are alleged to have simply entered the Capitol without assaulting persons or destroying property. All these defendants face the same charges. The details are a little different, but the sections of the U.S. Code they're being charged under are the same. So I'm going to explain these sections of the U.S. Code and explore the legislative history and historical context under which they were enacted. I'll examine and explain the relevant provisions and explain why everyone who intruded into the Capitol, without regard to whether or not Capitol Police moved barricades, committed crimes on January 6th, and how it is that such acts, as alleged, are illegal, how they came to be illegal. A bit of a spoiler here, but I'd just like to say it up front. The laws under which these defendants are being charged appear to have been originally intended to protect Congress and protected federal facilities from attack by the militant left, not the militant right. It says H.P. Lovecraft wrote in his work, The Shunned House, from the greatest of horrors, irony is seldom absent. Before we dive into this week's topic, a bit of news. The second plea agreement has been reached. It's actually related uh, in many ways to this week's topic. The first guilty plea was from John Schaefer, a founding member of the Oath Keepers, who pleaded guilty in April. According to sentencing guidelines, he sure should serve 41 to 51 months. Schaefer is obliged to testify in grand jury and other proceedings in which the government wants to call him as a witness. And it could be that one of the reasons why Schaefer was eager to plead is because he violated the 18 U.S. Code Section 1752, which is one of the topics of this episode. The real teeth in this section apply to persons who carry a dangerous weapon at the time of the offense 
or commit actions that result in serious bodily injury. In this case, the term is up to 10 years. Most of the offenses under this, they're covered under this section, are misdemeanors. This one's a felony. In all other cases, so the term is up to one year. So Schaefer, at the insurrection, carried bear spray. Fits the definition of a dangerous weapon. So he originally faced six charges. He pleaded guilty to two. Obstruction of an official proceeding in violation of 18 U.S. C U.S. Code Section 1512 C2, uh, which is a felony, and entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon. Again, that's uh, U.S. Code Section 1752 A1 B1A. So he's going to serve three and a half to four years, and he's cooperating and is required to continue to cooperate. And I, I plan on addressing Schaefer's case in a bit more detail in a future episode. In an upcoming episode, I'm planning on the Oath Keepers. So with four new arrests this week, uh, there have been a total of 19 uh, Oath Keepers charged. So they're getting up there. They're, you know, sort of proud boy numbers in terms of the number of defendants who have been charged. Not quite there yet. The second plea agreement is noteworthy precisely in some sense because it's not noteworthy and also relates to the topic of this week's episode. We know that John Schaefer uh, probably would want to plead. I mean, he certainly did. We know why he'd want to do that, uh, get a lot less time in six counts against him. And we also know why the government would be interested in offering him a plea so early in this process. He was facing decades in prison and also as a founding lifetime member of the Oath Keepers, he probably has evidence that's going to be of interest to the government as they make their cases against some of the key figures in the Oathkeeper Crowd Boy 3 Percenter conspiracy. Uh, again, covered that in the Monkey See, Monkey Do episode a little bit. We'll cover it in more detail as we address some of the, the other members of these uh, violent gangs. So, also, Schaefer, as a founding member and primary songwriter of the heavy metal band Iced Earth, he could afford a private attorney. Maybe these defendants, looking at uh, some of their backgrounds, probably can't. And so sound legal advice probably prompted him to beat his alleged co-conspirators to the punch. In this second plea agreement, none of that applies. Unlike Schaefer, this defendant isn't alleged to have committed any acts of violence, either inside or outside the Capitol. So what it looks like is that the government is trying to clear the decks offering plea bargains to defendants who don't appear to have committed acts of violence and who were not part of the extremist gangs and others who acted as the shock troops of the insurrection. The reason why I want to address this type of defendant is because it looks like the Department of Justice is working to resolve these cases expeditiously so they can devote more resources to the cases where defendants face more serious charges. So I won't go into too much detail into the defendant in the case where the plea, plea bargain was uh, agreed upon. But after having read many of these indictments, he seems pretty representative of this class of defendants uh, who are charged with sort of less serious offenses. Um, again, what Representative Clyde called you know, tourists, right? Um, and I, you know, in the title of this episode, I've called them misguided tourists. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes some American tourists have a bit of a bad reputation. And uh, these Tourists, the capital certainly deserve it. I know I'm, I'm framing it in a trope that you know uh, might minimize what they've done, but I'm, I'm doing it ironically. 
Um, these were not tourists, and I'll, I'll take some time to explain why later. So, um, his name is Paul Allard Hodgkins. He's a 38-year-old Trump supporter from Sulphur Springs, Florida. So, Florida man takes yet another place. Uh, Schaefer is also from Florida. Many of the defendants uh, are, in fact, from Florida. Uh, Trump's adopted home state. His identity became known to the government when a tipster saw a photo of him, uh, you know, when he was in the Capitol. And Hodgkins is alleged to have taken a photo of himself and posted it on social media. And he also appears in the Senate chamber itself in video footage posted to the New Yorker. Instagram followers reported him to the FBI after seeing posts that showed he was on the Capitol. And Hodgkins had originally been charged with four charges, but according to the press release from the Department of Justice and uh, Associated Media Reports, um, he was able to plead guilty to just one charge. So let's talk about the four charges he was charged with and then what he wanted pleading. Uh, Hodgkins was charged with four counts, a violation of 18 U.S. Code 1512, obstruction of an official proceeding, again, felony, and violations of 18 U.S. Code 17, Section 1752, A1 and 2, which are entering a restricted government building, a building where someone who has Secret Service protection uh, is residing or working, and knowingly impeding government business through disorderly conduct. He's also charged with uh, 40 U.S.C., sorry, um, Title 40, U.S. Code Section uh, 5104E2, which is basically disorderly conduct in the Capitol with the intent to disrupt the business of Congress and parading or demonstrating in the Capitol. So for the sake of brevity, I'm going to refer to these provisions in the Federal Code as Sections 1512, 1752, and 5104. And I'm not an attorney. You probably aren't either. Um, but I'll make it clear which of these provisions I'm referring to uh, as we go along. So Hodgkins pleaded guilty to the first charge. Again, felony obstruction of an official proceeding. And that carries a, a sentence of 15 to 21 months, according to federal guidelines, for a defendant with his uh, history, which is non-existent, apparently. So it's of interest to see the plea has been arrived at for someone who's char been charged with these offenses, precisely because these are the most common offenses among the defendants. Among the violent offenders, people like Shane Leiden Jenkins, we covered in episode two, there are a large number of felony counts. But for those who simply entered the Capitol, and for whom there's no evidence to suggest that they commit acts of violence, they're all being charged under these three sections of the U.S. Criminal Code. And so we'll see how much time is actually be being given uh, to, you know, these defendants based on this plea bargain, which could be representative of other plea bargains moving forward. Uh, it could be that the AUSAs, the assistant U.S. attorneys, are dangling a carrot to the other defendants, the ones who aren't crime, accused of crimes of violence, so they can focus on other cases and, you know, in fact, say to them, uh, see how much better it could be if you accepted the plea? It might be, might help, have helped Hodges, Hodgkins, rather that he uh, had good character witnesses and no criminal record. Um, he pleaded guilty to obstruction rather than the charges in sections 1752 or 5104. 
which we'll uh, discuss later in the podcast. So again, he accepts the felony charge rather than the other three charges uh, that he was he was facing. And his sentencing is set for July 19th at the moment, although, of course, that could change. There's been speculation in the press that many of these nonviolent defendants will wind up serving no actual time in any federal facility. I don't think that's correct, but if it is, it's not right. If a crowd of people forces its way into a federal facility and some other people follow behind them, bad precedent permit them to go unpunished, especially if the building in question is the United States Capitol and the business that's being obstructed is the certification of electoral college votes to ratify the election of a new president and secure the peaceful transfer of power essential to democratic governance. I've seen some commentary that suggests that judges won't look favorably on prosecutors to seek to throw the book at these least violent offenders. I don't think that's right either. The circumstances of the insurrection would tend to make these charges more weighty than if, say, a handful of protesters had engaged in civil disobedience. Also, one might want to note that federal judges themselves do business on federal property. If they go easy on insurrectionists in the U.S. Capitol, would any federal courthouse in the country be safe? Probably not, right? So, given the sentencing guidelines, for most offenders who accept a deal similar to that offered to Hodgkins, looks like they'll be serving a little more than a year, um, almost certainly in a camp or a low-security federal prison. I think for the, the, the misdemeanor offenders, they'll probably wind up uh, trying, asking for, uh, and presumably getting uh, the maximum penalty, which would be a year. And many of these offenders who, again, no crimes of violence, but they did get the obstruction charge, they could be looking at more time if they wind up going to trial and getting that and the misdemeanor charges tacked on. So this Hodgkins plea might set the standard for how they're going to be treated. They're going to do far less time if they accept the plea than if they don't. Most of the defendants who accept charges under uh, sections 1752 and 5104 are looking at four counts. Now, penalties differ greatly. As I mentioned before, if they're carrying a dangerous weapon, uh, that the penalty for that is 10 years. So on paper, Hodgkins you know, could have gotten a lot more time. That would be a, a big upward deviation from the sentencing guidelines. And that's probably not likely for someone who accepts a plea. So going into this, I would have thought they would have been looking at convictions under 1752 and 5104, precisely because they're easier to prove. And I'll talk about why that is the case later. These offenses basically revolve around the question of whether or not a defendant is or was someplace where they weren't supposed to be. Now, given the evidence, that's fairly easy to prove. But of course, I'm not an attorney, and there are reasons why the Department of Justice might prefer to accept the plea for obstruction of an official proceeding to the other charges. The real crime at the most basic level is obstruction of an official proceeding. That is what the mob of the insurrection was there to accomplish on the 6th of January to obstruct the certification of the Electoral College votes in the 2020 presidential election. So if the Hodgkins plea is any guide, it looks like the government might ask defendants to plead guilty to the obstruction of an official proceeding charge, assuming they've been charged with that, and many of them have not, in exchange for dropping all the other charges. Or again, they could take their chances in court. So it's worth noting, and this 
part hasn't really received much press attention. Some people are surprised by it. How many people fall into this category? How many cases are, you know, these misguided tourists really representing? In order to figure that out, I tallied up 200 cases, which is a pretty good sample size. So there's something like, what, 450? At this point, I haven't updated my Excel spreadsheet in a little while. Um, but regardless, sample size is about 40% of all cases. So as I was tallying them, the results became pretty clear. I had three different categories, those who were far charged under these three sections, those who were charged with these three sections, and something else, and then uh, defendants who were not charged under uh, the three sections I'm talking about, um, but had other charges. So it became pretty clear as I was going through that it was going to be about half. So about half of the defendants are charged with these three counts, obstruction of an official proceeding, knowingly entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds without lawful authority, and violent entry and disorderly conduct on capital grounds. And many of them are just charged with the latter two, the two misdemeanors. So I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but these three crimes are charges which virtually, you know, I mean, again, uh, all defendants have been charged. So if you draw a Venn diagram of all the capital defendants, those charges are going to appear. Um, almost all of them. You overlap, and the subset, the group of people who've committed violent crimes or property crimes or conspiracy, that's a subset, right? So these charges apply to everybody. If you were in the capital and you were engaged in violence against democracy merely by being there, right? Sort of by definition. Um, and if you're engaged in actual physical violence, right, you're being charged with these other offenses as well. So of the 200 cases I tallied, 109, 54.5%, were charged with only these offenses. And these are the people I'm calling tourists, again, ironically, um, because that's what revisionists, such as Representative Clyde, are calling them. The other half in my sample of 20, uh, sorry, 200, was 89 individuals. So actually less than half, right? So 44.5%. So these were people charged with, um, you know, offenses under these sections and ad additional offenses. So these additional offenses run the gamut, uh, include crimes of violence, theft, or destruction of property, uh, also charges such as conspiracy, aiding and abetting, making false statements, um, obstructed an investigation, etc. So that's why I wanted to do an episode on these so-called tourists, people I'm calling misguided tourists, right? Tourists have tour guides. Well, they have their own kind of tour guide. Uh, the segment I played in the intro was someone who's clearly acting as a kind of a marshal, right? So they had people to guide uh, these misguided tourists. And hopefully the, the government will look at those people as well. Um, most of the subjects we're dealing with are going to be persons who are facing other offenses, right? In addition to these three different uh, charges under these sections. When I talk about most of the other people we're going to cover in this podcast, most of them are going to be the people who are sort of at the center. Shock groups, right? Shock troops. Um, but, you know, slightly more than half of the defendants aren't in that category. So, um, yeah, that's the baseline. And it's going to go up from there. 
um, because precisely because it's not received much media attention. And again, I don't want to mitigate the seriousness of the insurrection itself by covering these less violent offenders early on in the process. And I'll explain why I think these, these people deserve the maximum amount of, of penalty under the law. But uh, just to be aware, I kind of want to clear the decks just as the DOJ is doing, get them out of the way early, talk about them, talk about what they're accused of doing, precisely because I expect most of these cases are going to be resolved by plea bargain, and probably soon, right? Speedy Trials Act is a thing that exists. Of the two plea bargains agreed so far, both Schaefer and Hodgkins pleaded guilty to Title 18 U.S. Code Section 512C. This section of the code usually pertains to accusations of witness tampering or tampering with evidence, but the language is just simply says official proceeding rather than, say, trial, presumably explicitly to include proceedings such as congressional investigations. Here's the relevant section. Section C. Whoever's corruptly, one, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding, or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned not more than 20 years, or both. So, it's a felony. And most of the language is directed at legal proceedings rather than constitutionally mandated congressional duties, such as the certification of electoral college votes. But the language is clearly crafted to include all official proceedings, including those that have not been instituted, and without regard to what kind of body is holding the proceeding, literally any agency. The language is very broad. So long as the intent is corrupt, any act that, quote, obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding is covered. Occupying the Capitol during the congressional certification of electoral college votes may not have been, have been what Congress had in mind when they drafted this legislation, but the language is sufficiently broad that it's included. Time will tell if this is the charge that the AUSAs will try to get defendants to plead to. Both Schaefer and Hodgkins pleaded guilty to this charge, but there's nothing to really go off of this. I mean, we can't generalize too much. It could be just how the charges have been bargained, a mere coincidence. It could be that many more defendants are going to plead to either remaining in a restricted building or violent entry and disorderly conduct in a Capitol building. What I'm pretty sure of is that the vast majority of these cases especially these cases where there's no evidence of more serious crimes, the government will attempt to reach pleas. According to a 2019 Pew study, 90% of all federal charges are resolved by a guilty plea. 8% of cases had charges dismissed, and 2% went to trial. And of these, the government won 87% of cases. And defendants in those cases wound up being issued far stiffer sentences than they would have been receiving had they taken a plea. The other key issue here is that the obstruction charge, again, is a felony. Most of the other possible charges are misdemeanors, unless a weapon's involved, so there is a reason why prosecutors might prefer this charge. 
my guess is that the government's going to try to get as many defendants in this tourist category to plead to obstruction of an official proceeding. I could well be wrong. It could just be that Hodgkins got stuck with the obstruction charge because he, during his 15 minutes inside the Capitol, happened to go into the Senate chamber. And many defendants haven't been charged with obstructing an official proceeding, in which case they'll probably be offered a plea involving the other two possible offenses that are, again, uh, misdemeanors, sentences up to a year. So if they don't plead to obstructing an official proceeding, the government has these other charges at their disposal at trial. 40 U.S. Code Section 1504, violent entry and disorderly conduct in a Capitol building. 40 U.S. Code Section 5104E2, parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Most of the defendants uh, are picketing, picking up those two charges. And additionally, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1752A1, entering and remaining in a restricted building, and 18 U.S. Code, 1752A2, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building. And if you go through on the Department of Justice page, you'll see that about half the defendants just have these four charges. So they're each misdemeanors, but. Um, could be that, you know, maybe some of these indictments will be amended to include the obstruction charge, in which case they could face a felony. Now, there's some redundancy here. Because the Capitol's covered by its own laws prohibiting certain conduct, and because there are also laws covering any facility where an individual protected by the Secret Service is working or residing, that's where you get these separate counts. The reason why I would have expected the Department of Justice to prefer these charges to other possibilities is that they seem purpose-built for the circumstances. I know I've buried the lead here, but if you died in the legislative history of these laws, it's evident that what they have in common, other than the fact that both of them covered the Capitol on January 6th, is that they both appear to have originally been inspired by the possibility of political violence or protest by the left. So this far-right mob is going to be subject to laws passed to contain left-wing political movements. In one fell swoop, more right-wing defendants are going to have to answer for allegations made under these provisions than have ever been the case involving a case with left-wing defendants. So let's go into legislative history a little bit. Uh, what's become Section 5104 of the Code dates back to 1946 with Public Law 570, which defined exactly what comprised the Capitol grounds, and limited what sorts of conduct was permissible on Capitol grounds. It did things such as banning hawking of goods by vendors, prohibiting the blocking of roads around the Capitol, forbidding climbing or vandalizing any statue, wall, fountain, or shrub at the Capitol, forbidding use of firearms or fireworks, the utterance of loud or abusive language, and parading or demonstrating, and the carrying of flags or banners without authorization from the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. It's not clear to me whether the law as enacted in 1946 was conceived with any particular event or precipitating incident in mind, but it occurred against a backdrop of many marches and demonstrations that had taken place in D.C. since the end of World War I. For example, there was the large KKK march in 1925, there was the Hunger March of 1931, and the Bonus Army of 1932, which 
always gets a mention whenever there are debates regarding security at the Capitol and D.C. generally uh, come up. Because Hoover, of course, in the bonus march, um, uh, bonus army, again, you know, you, you may not remember this, they were promised a bonus in World War I, uh, U.S. troops never got it. And so uh, they encamped in Washington, D.C., and it was resolved when President Hoover ordered MacArthur uh, with Patton, who I think at the time was a major, um, to break it up. And they did it. And they did it with cavalry. They did it with fixed bayonets and tear gas. So, uh, you know, pretty serious example of, you know, the, the kind of, of possibility of, you know, a, uh, a violent attack on demonstrators. From 1941 to 1946, or uh, maybe 47, there was also the March on Washington movement, which marched to support equal treatment for black workers and against Jim Crow and racist violence. It was organized by A. Philip Randolph, who first rose to prominence as a labor organizer in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Corridors. Um, he was a socialist and dedicated his whole life uh, to the cause of civil rights and labor issues. And um, they protested not just in Washington, but across the country. They did hold an event in 1946. Um, the March on Washington movement had a peaceful march in D.C. and, and elsewhere uh, to protect, protest the murder of two black couples in Georgia, a crime that's usually referred to as the Moore's Ford lynching, because it occurred in Moore's Ford, Georgia. The Moore's Ford lynching, incidentally, um, could be a subject of a, of, a, of a major rabbit hole. Um, but it's an extremely important event in the civil rights movement and in civil rights history. And the precipitating incident, that murder of uh, four black uh, people, two couples, uh, in 1946, remains unsolved to this day. And in March of 2020, um, federal judge ruled that the grand jury proceedings in the uh, Moore's Ford lynching um, were permanently sealed. All right, so back to 40 U.S. U.S. Code, Section 5104. The law regarding conduct on capital grounds was greatly revised in 1967 with Public Law 90-108, which was enacted on October 20th, 1967. Could be a coincidence, I don't think it was, but on the following day, October 21st, 1967, D.C. saw one of the largest anti-war protests to that date, the so-called uh, March on Washington, March on the Pentagon, excuse me, or the Pentagon Riot, uh, which is what officials called it. There's a marked contrast, by the way, in the response to the March on the Pentagon uh, and the events of January 6th. Officials knew that protesters might storm the Pentagon, and so they had hundreds of agents and troops in place armed with M1 rifles and vans to secure protesters, something they didn't have on January 6th. They were better prepared. Again, left-wing violence, for some reason, authorities uh, tend to look more askance. Even even a, a peaceful demonstration you know, might occupy a building. They, they look, they deal with that more seriously than they do with the possibility of right-wing violence, even when it comes to something like tampering with the certification of the electoral vote uh, by both houses of Congress. Marshals, at the time of the uh, march on the Pentagon, arrested 682 protesters. And the protesters never got inside the building. So, 
again, laws are enacted, you know, the day they're enacted. And so it just so happens that this new, more stringent law uh, that codified, um, you know, what you could do at the Capitol winds up being enacted the day before this major march in D.C., target of which was not the Capitol, uh, but was the Pentagon. So 40 U.S. Code 5104 was designed to deal with the possibility of this kind of action at the Capitol. Basically, uh, it's specified that any carrying, carrying of any kind of firearm, dangerous weapon, explosive or incendiary device on Capitol grounds, uh, these are all felonies. And also, quote, knowingly, with force and violence, to enter or remain on the floor of either House of Congress would be a misdemeanor, unless you carry a dangerous weapon, in which case you get a sentence in hand as a felony. Most of the text of the current, current code is derived from language derived in October, passed in October 1967. It's far more comprehensive than the original text enacted in 1946, includes more specific acts and increased penalties for the uh, people who violated. The testimony uh, that was entered into the congressional record of the debate surrounding Senate Bill 2310, which is what winds up uh, becoming uh, the legislation that was enacted in October 1967, uh, that winds up again becoming uh, the relevant provisions of 40 U.S.C. 5104. Um, there is a bit of lively debate around it, and I'd like to spend a little time reciting some of it. Uh, C-SPAN didn't exist back then, so and I'm, I'm not going to do impressions. Um, one of them is from my uh, senator from my home state, uh, North Carolina, Senator B. Everett Jordan. And uh, this is what he said as he was introducing the bill. Uh, before Senate. Quote, in recent months, there's been an increasing number of instances in the Capitol building and in other Capitol buildings, which I thought should be dealt with much more severely than in the past. The old law provides that a simple misdemeanor carry a fine not to exceed $50. Senate Bill 2310 amends the Act of 1946 by thoroughly revising Section 6 of that Act and making it clear that the offenses enumerated and prohibited therein apply with equal force in Capitol buildings, as well as on the Capitol grounds. This bill does not change Section 7 of the 1946 Act, as the witnesses who testified before the committee stated that while no arrests and convictions had ever been made under this Act, at the same time it served a good purpose in deterring mobs and unruly groups before they arrived at or in the Capitol buildings. And I would like to further point out that no peaceful gathering or parade has ever been questioned, nor will it be, but that this bill is designed entirely to enforce law and order in the Capitol buildings, as well as on Capitol grounds. So, again, being vague here, but, you know, there's stuff happening in 1967, and uh, B. Everett Jordan is, you know, has some reason to uh, fear for the security of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, some of the other speakers that day were a little bit more explicit. Here's Senator Cooper of Kentucky. Quote, If there are groups whose purpose in coming to the Capitol is to disrupt, 
or attempt to stop the very legislative process required by the Constitution, appropriate and constitutional protection must be provided, as Senate Bill 2310 proposes, against such an assertion of anarchy. And finally, we have Senator Byrd of West Virginia, who also supported uh, Senate Bill 2310. Quote, we have recently witnessed two disgraceful episodes affecting the work of the Senate. One occurred in this chamber itself when demonstrators in the gallery dropped leaflets opposing the war in Vietnam to the Senate floor. The other took place in a Senate committee room when relief recipients demonstrated against legislative proposals before the committee. If these occurrences had been allowed to pass without notice or action, more violent demonstrations might well have followed them. For, as I have stated before, I believe these things to be part of a pattern of disorder deliberately calculated to create a crisis in the operations of our government. It goes on, quote, What we have to guard against, and what this legislation is aimed at, is violent action and expression and unlawful interruption of the legislative machinery by incipient revolutionaries. I believe, Mr. President, that this measure, if properly implemented, will prove an effective deterrent to those who would impede, harass, or disrupt the federal legislative processes. End quote. Well, this legislation, of course, again, interesting that Byrd notes, Senator Byrd notes that there's, you know, <laughs> from 1946-1967, they never prosecuted a single person uh, for, for these uh, crimes in the Capitol. And on January 6th, it didn't appear to have the deterrent effect that Senator Burr attributed to it. But the congressional record makes it pretty clear. The events that precipitated, precipitated the passage were associated with the anti-war and civil rights movements. And I should add that in the record, there's also a long and impassioned speech by Senator Stephen Young of Ohio who thought the bill would criminalize protests and dissent. And he quotes Clarence Darrow. You can read it. It's in the Congressional Record, October 5th, 1967. Uh, it's quite eloquent. But nonetheless, his fears don't come to pass either, right? People are not, you know, they're not criminalizing protest. Um, it, the, it serves to protect the Capitol and uh, was in effect as amended on January 6, 2020. And did not appear to deter the Trumpist insurrectionist mob. All right. So that brings us to the final of the three charges that have been levied against these, quote, you know, tourists. Uh, charges that are brought under 18 U.S. Code Section 1752. The legislative history of this provision of the code also dates back to this period, but instead of concerning itself with protests and demonstrations, it relates to another feature of the 1960s and 70s, assassinations, and assassination attempts. So the provisions regarding restricted buildings is in the same law that was enacted to stiffen penalties for those accused of attempted assassination of members of Congress. It creates a category of, quote, restricted grounds, which is anywhere where the president is residing, working, or visiting. Later on, this category of restricted grounds would be expanded to include anywhere where any person receiving Secret Service protection is located. 
Now, since, of course, Vice President Pence and Vice President-elect Harris have Secret Service protection in effect on January 6th, the Capitol is clearly included in the category of restricted grounds under Section 1752. Now, the language that's used here is similar to the language that's used in describing the Capitol grounds, referring to, quote, intent to impede or disrupt the orderly conduct of government business or official functions, to engage in disorderly or disruptive conduct in or within such proximity to any buildings or grounds designated in paragraph one. When, and again, that's anywhere where the president or someone else uh, who has secret service protection is residing or working, when or so that such conduct, in fact, impedes or disrupts the orderly conduct of the government business or official functions. Three, willfully, willfully and knowingly to obstruct or impede ingress or egress from or to or from any building, grounds, or area designated or enumerated in paragraph one. Four, willfully and knowingly to engage in any act of physical violence against any person or property in any building grounds, or area designated or enumerated in paragraph one. So they're including the White House specifically, and then again, anywhere where the president and later other people who have Secret Service protection are residing, to include, you know, for example, uh, candidates for the presidency. So Section 1752 has been amended a number of times since 1971, and generally speaking, these amendments increase penalties and increased coverage. So, as I mentioned before, uh, mainly to expand the definition of a restricted grounds to include individuals other than the president who have Secret Service protection. All right, so I'd like to end this section on the legislative history of the sections of the code under which these uh, misguided tourists have been charged with one change that was enacted in 2012 to Section 1752 that wound up being somewhat controversial the Federal Restricted Grounds and Improvement Act of 2011, which was H.R. 347. It was introduced in the House by Republican Representative Ron Tom Rooney of Florida and in the Senate by Richard Blumenthal, Senator Richard, Blum, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. And it passed the Senate with unanimous consent. And it passed in the House on February 28, 2012, with 338 yay votes, three nay votes. And the nay votes came from Representative Paul Brown of Georgia, Representative Justin Amash, Amash of Republican of Michigan, uh, and Representative Keith Ellison, Democrat of Minnesota, with an abstention from Ron Paul. Now, supporters of civil, civil liberties, on both at the left and the right at the time, thought that this bill would be used to crack down on dissent. Nonetheless, as one might expect, um, you know, passed unanimously or close to unanimously in both the House and the Senate. One contributor, uh, Janine Moloff, at Huffington Post at the time, wrote the following, quote, Mahaffey claims that this bill does not trample the constitutionally protected right to protest, yet the bill itself criminalizes disruptive conduct in such vague terms that seventh grader disrupting visiting, visiting dignitaries, receiving Secret Service protection over any issue, no matter how trivial, such as school uniforms, would be potentially guilty of a federal felony. 
What Rooney and so many government elites cynically ignore is the very nature of protest. Protest is it's in its very nature is intended to disrupt government business as usual. For without such disruption, the protest would be as effective as a common. End quote. So on the left, there was a fair amount of discussion uh, regarding HR 347. Uh, and again, back in 2011, this was the Occupy movement. So again, we have a bill that, um, you know, is increasing the security around restricted grounds, places that have Secret Service protection. And uh, once again, the left feels it's directed against them. Uh, Gabe Rotman from Rotman from the AC, ACLU wrote at the time, quote, under the original language of the law, you had to act willingly, willfully, and knowingly when committing the crime. In short, you had to know your conduct was illegal. Under H.R. 347, you simply need to act knowingly, which here would mean that you know you're in a restricted area, but not necessarily that you're committing crime. So, end quote, this change just sort of lowered the bar and made the government and the prosecutors easier. So some of these misguided tourists might actually claim that their conduct wasn't knowing, but that's going to be really difficult. They got on a plane. They marched from the ellipse to the Capitol. They approached the Capitol, and then they entered the Capitol. For them to make the argument is like, you know, it's kind of like saying that someone slipped and fell on your fist repeatedly when you've assaulted them, right? And again, this criticism didn't even just come from the left. Reason Magazine did a, a piece that was critical of the bill, a uh, libertarian publication, and uh, supported Representative uh, Amash's uh, argument against uh, HR 347. And there was also a change.org petition, uh, which got a total of six signatories at the time. So even though there's, there's a lot of, you know, articles online about this, um, you know, might not have been this, you know, this sort of mass movement, but there was a lot of chatter on the left in the Occupy movement, especially that this bill would criminalize protests. So the fear was that, um, the Secret Service would redefine restricted grounds to include, you know, whole cities, right, uh, and thereby make everyone who is engaging in, in protests or, you know, broadly speaking, disorderly conduct, wherever that is, um, you know, uh, guilty of a federal crime. So there's this sort of, you know, idea that there's a, a creeping expansion of the concept of free speech zones, and this a lot of people refer to it as a bill that explicitly criminalized protest. Now, in retrospect, a lot of this criticism seems misplaced. So we've had, you know, a decade now, and this is really the first time these charges have come into play. Authorities didn't use these provisions to expand the definition of a restricted area in an effort to crack down on protected free speech. In reviewing much of the criticism of the law from 2011, Many of the critics didn't seem to understand that these provisions already existed, that the only real change was this change to the willful element of what constituted the crime. But even though, you know, even if, let's say, it wasn't directed explicitly against the Occupy movement, people on the left very much thought that it was directed against the left. All right, so those are the three sections of the U.S. Code that the misguided tourists are accused of violating. These provisions appear to have been enacted 
mainly in response to the threat of political violence or civil disobedience from the left, but the law itself is neutral with regard to who gets charged, or at least it's supposed to be. The storming of the Capitol was way beyond the wildest imagination of what would have been possible for Vietnam War protesters because they knew that uh, police and National Guard would be mobilized against them in a timely manner. But the same laws directed at the anti-war movement were now deployed against these, this Trumpist insurrection. The judicial system has several elements. On the 6th, law enforcement completely and utterly failed to respond adequately to the threat posed by the Trumpist mob. But they seem to have forgotten about the role that investigators and prosecutors also play in the rule of law. On that day, the Trumpist mob was able to act as white mobs often have in American history, with absolute impunity. But the Justice Department has been working since then to try to hold them to account. Now, Congress is always reactive. They always try to fight the last war. So we're probably going to see changes to the code resulting from the events of the January 6th insurrection. So, for example, if I, as an individual, somehow make my way into the Senate chamber to scream, shout, and obstruct even the most mundane proceedings, I would be subject to the same penalties that the mob faces today. Although the law does recognize that mobs are dangerous, we don't charge people that way. We presuppose individuality. We charge individuals for individual acts, whether they do them in isolation or as part of a dangerous mob. And one might think that acting in concert with hundreds or thousands of other people, even if some of those individuals in the mob had pre-planned an attack, would invite stiffer penalties under the law, but the code itself, as of yet, makes no such distinctions. Um, if I were, uh, you know, on the staff of a member, I would be concerned, and I would want to look into the possibility of, you know, what constitutes a mob right, and what constitutes acting in concert with a mob and enhancing penalties so that, you know, you're not looking at misdemeanors for storming the Capitol. My current expectation is that we're at the beginning of a wave of plea bargains for these misguided tourists. That being said, we've seen a lot of press coverage on this for eh, like six weeks now, and uh, the wave hasn't happened. So some of the attorneys have publicly speculated that, you know, why, about the question of why the Department of Justice hasn't been quicker to offer their, their clients deals. In the middle of March, press accounts, apparently relying on background information from defense attorneys, began to publicize the issue um, that pleas could be up forthcoming in the following weeks. But now early June, and we've only had two pleas. So could be that um, this just goes to the strength of the government's cases against these defendants. They're letting them sweat it out. Um, and, you know, Certainly, at the end, though, they're not going to take most of these cases to trial. They're going to offer plea deals. Um, this week, the government actually did drop a case, it, quote, in the interest of justice. But this looks like a very tenuous, marginal case that they probably shouldn't have made to begin with. It was just based on the testimony of a tipster who appears to have been wrong um, about whether a given individual, one Chris Kelly, was actually in the Capitol. So um, what little there is coming out, of, and there, there's not a lot, right? Uh, I think it's mainly coming from the defense side. AUSAs are talking to defense, and then defense is talking to the press. It suggests that the AUSAs, the assistant U.S. attorneys, are, are sticking to their guns. So attorneys for Richard Bigo Barnett reportedly rejected a plea deal 
that would have required that Bigo serve several years. But again, he's not the kind of person I'm talking about here, right? He made his way all the way to Nancy Pelosi's office, spent a lot of time there, stole some things from her office. Uh, the office was being vandalized while he was there, and he had, uh, I believe, a, a cattle prod or some sort of other dangerous weapon, like a stun gun, on his person. So he's, this is off the table for him, right? If he wants to plea, he should probably plea to a felony, because that, that's really all they're going to give him. Um, he's not going to get a deal that he really likes. Now, other defendants really haven't been helping their attorneys also, and that's part of why pleas may not be forthcoming. Jenny Cudd, a florist from Texas, went on camera to say that she would do it again. Right? She stormed the Capitol, um, and she said she would do it again if she could. So if you're going to make statements that demonstrate that you're a danger to the community or to government itself, uh, if you're still caught up with the spirit of the insurrection, prosecutors aren't going to beat a path to your door to try to offer you a deal. You're going to have to stand up in court and acknowledge the nature and the wrongfulness of your acts. Some of these defendants, um, you know, their attorneys are, are apparently trying to lay the groundwork for claims that well, they were brainwashed and uh, they're somehow not culpable. Um, that's just not even a defense. Uh, these defendants are going to have to admit that what they believed was wrong. And if they don't do that, there's no reason for them to be offered a deal because there's still a danger to the community. If you're still gullible that I can talk you into storming the Capitol, you're clearly a danger to the community, especially since Fox News is part of the basic cable package, right? So the propaganda is still out there, and they're still repeating the same lies. They can't change that. Um, all that you can do is to stand up and admit <laughs> what you did was wrong. You know better now. The election uh, was not fraudulent. Um, Joe Biden, in fact, won by a significant majority against an incredibly unpopular uh, historically unpopular incumbent. So there have been a few defendants who've offered the rather absurd defense that they were forced in by the mob, or they were invited in by Capitol Police, or that they were just somehow mistaken that what they were doing was wrong. Now, we should make no mistake about this, right? These misguided tourists were not mistaken. Most of them traveled to the Ellipse, and then they marched to the Capitol, then they approached the Capitol, and they were greeted by the sight of militant extremists fighting with police. And they weren't at all deterred by that. Then there's the clip that I played at the beginning of the podcast, right? They had people acting as marshals. And they said things like, if you're scared of confrontation, do not move forward. Patriots, move forward. So they made it clear that if you advance on the Capitol, you're going to be part of the confrontation. And they, there are other clips that show people saying similar things, right? You know, only approach capital if you're ready to fight. So, um, you know, they may not have personally attacked the police themselves. They may not have stolen anything or vandalized capital or damaged property, but they didn't just wander in. They had to approach the capital on foot and find a point of access. While all around them, the mob was chanting violent threats against Vice President Pence. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and others. So even though the element of willfulness is not an essential part 
some of the charges they face today. These were willful, volitional acts. They chose to be part of the confrontation, and they're now confronted with the consequences of that choice. All right, let's review where we are. In the last episode, I laid out some goals for the, the first episode. Sorry, I laid out some goals for this podcast, and we've made some progress on some of them. In the second episode, I did a case study of Shane Lee Jenkins, an example of the kind of defendant who allegedly traveled to the Capitol and committed violence, but not in association with some broader conspiracy, and examined some of what he apparently believed from his social media history. Next, I examined the Proud Boys and constructed a timeline of how they originally went early to the Capitol to model the violent behavior they sought to bring out from the rest of the crowd. And I spent a little time on the strange ideology of this extremist street gang that's been described as a terrorist organization by the government of Canada, home of Gavin McInnes, the founder of the Proud Boys. This week, took a deeper dive into the allegations of some of the less violent members of the mob who entered the Capitol, and how laws that were probably originally directed at political violence from the left are now being used in an ironic twist of history against a mob of far-right extremists who managed something that the left never could have done, precisely because law enforcement would have been ready for it. Next week, I'm going to focus on a group that's gotten little press attention, people who have ties on what we can definitively call the establishment conservative movement. Many of the Proud Boys and people such as Jenkins are somewhat marginal figures. Uh, They're working in their parents' restaurants. They're uh, quasi-disabled union uh, welders from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, They're also defendants, defendants who've been charged with, you know, allegations that who have, you know, connections to the conservative movement that are more than allegations, very substantial connections to an established part of the Republican Party, the established conservative movement. And um, these folks, for some reason, individually, they've, they've received some media attention, but there's not been an effort to really sort of draw all this together and explain how um, a certain part of the conservative movement is fully owned by Trump and are willing to, uh, in effect, you know, storm the Capitol, literally storm the Capitol on his behalf. So we'll explore those people in the next episode. In the meantime, please rate, subscribe, and recommend this podcast to your friends. I'm Scott Kuhn, and I hope you return next week for another installment of Capitol Insurrection Report.